Hey everybody, this is Evan Wickham, and thanks for listening to the Park Hill Church Podcast. It's been a while since we've done uh, an interview like this in the studio, but it is uh, about time. It is Black History Month, and uh, the leadership of Park Hill Church wanted to acknowledge that and just hear from a voice within our community that's doing great work in the area of race and clinical psychology, and his name is Jacob Ambrose. Hi, Jacob. Hey, everybody. Um, is I'm so excited to be here, um, and thank you for the introduction. I, too, think it's uh, once uh, Pastor Evan brought this up, I was just so excited to participate. Uh, just listening to different voices and their experiences, I think, is so important. But I'll start by introducing myself. Yeah, my yeah. name's uh, Yeah, my name is Jacob Ambrose. Um, I'm currently a fourth-year uh, clinical PhD student at the Alliant International University. I'm also doing some uh, clinical work as uh, practicing at SDSU. I'm currently just a, a practicum therapist there, so I'm not licensed yet, but mm. we'll be there soon, hopefully. So yeah. I'm right on my way and excited. You just got yeah. yeah that internship, man. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, so I also applied for an internship. Uh, very competitive, but. Um, I really wanted uh, the University of San Diego, which I got, and um, I'm currently down here in San Diego with me and my wife, so that's perfect. Uh, internship at USD is just ideal for Man. us. So this weekend, found out on uh, Friday, actually, and so I've just been on cloud nine since this weekend. Congratulations, so it's, it's been amazing. Thank, thank you so much. So good. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd love to just get right into it and ask you, yeah, yeah. from your unique perspective and your history, your upbringing, what is Black History Month? meant for you as a believer, follower of Jesus. I know you grew up in Southern Louisiana. Yes, yes. And you're here in San Diego. Oh, very different. <laughs> Hopefully we hear... And you're married to a Turkish girl. Yes, so, yes. so all of this, I want to hear. that. Start with, like, what does Black History Month mean to you and growing up? Yeah, I, I really like that question. Black History Month is... Um, it's I think it's so important. I know there's a lot of diverse um, opinions about it. Um, I feel that given that it's a, a month dedicated to African-American um, achievements, mm -hmm. I think that is so important when uh, there's so much level of um, invisibility sometimes that comes up uh, in, the, in our society. There's um, a lot of internalized racism. There's mm. um, lots of systematic oppression going on. And I think definitely a step in the direction. Black History Month for me is uh, one voice that's saying, I can do this also in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, I can be a, a black president. I can I can be a black psychologist, and that's what yeah. I'm aiming to be. So it's yeah. it's uh, celebrating those achievements are big for me. So I think yeah. Black History Month definitely has had a big impact on me in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, you dropped a couple like key terms there, like yeah. internalized racism, systematic oppression. These things are right at the center of cultural discourse uh, right now, especially mm -hmm. after last year with with racism coming to the forefront of the American mind. Totally. Um, but as a follower of Jesus, like growing up in church, um, I'd love to just hear, start, for starters, like what was it like growing up uh, in your family and in your church? Yeah, so life growing up in Louisiana, so different than San Diego, so different. It's it's definitely been a, a, a self-exploration journey for me as I'm taking pieces from my environment because my environment has so so often communicated um, many things that have led to different aspects of internalized racism and uh, I just I can remember in Louisiana being uh, you know someone who had to face many microaggressions um, like just different comments like uh, I can remember being in a private school where I was think like uh, three of the hundreds of white people there um, and 
PE, there was like a swimming activity and uh, some of the guys just mentioning like when I got in the water, like the water seems like they would say something like the water is turning black. Like once I got in there and it was just mm -hmm. like my my mind back then wasn't so much. So like this is a this is a jab at me and who I am as a, as a person. I didn't really register that. But I think in living in the South, my upbringing, I was deeply impacted in a lot of ways. So uh, so you didn't you didn't register that as racism uh, because is it related to internalized racism? Because that's that's a microaggression, correct? Like, yes. can you define that? Like, what is microaggression? Yeah. So, a microaggression, you can think of it almost like a, a mosquito bite. It's like something that kind of like hits you from the outside, and um, it's a comment about your race, and it's a comment that really puts you down in some mm. way. But it comes, it, it is not, it's not an overt way. They're not saying like, I hate black people. I hate this race. I hate that. But yeah. it's like a comment. It can even just be an attitude, a feeling of superiority someone else might have. It's a, it's a jab at someone that um, really goes against their ethnicity. And one of the reasons that um, I mentioned mosquito bite is sometimes uh, the fact that when facing microaggressions, they can happen so often that uh, if viewed as a mosquito bite, somebody might say, oh, yeah, that was just a small jab, you know. But what happens if there's hundreds and thousands of mosquito bites? That can turn into something, I don't know, an infection. You might turn into a giant bump or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like you get fed up with that, and it's uh, those can be very tough to hear. And yeah. speaking to maybe more internalized racism, that's, that's a whole different term where you start to actually um, – like live into yes yes you start to actually believe that experience is normal yeah so i remember talking to you at coffee um a couple of weeks ago and you mentioned that that you you grew up in in a predominantly white context i mean forgive me if i misspeak there's tons of room for grace hopefully for sure, me to sure. just kind of mm -hmm. fumble through my words here but um you were you were called you know you're such a white black guy yeah yeah would that be a microaggression? Yes, totally. And the way it internalizes is that you just kind of perceive it as normal until maybe later on in your life it comes out as trauma. Yes, yes. And I think um, this happens so often because during those early phases of development, that's where we're trying to build our identity, where we're trying to fit in, where we're trying to see if I can build my identity based on where I am. And being surrounded yeah. by uh, a predominantly white environment, um, I could have chosen to maybe go against to uh, try to fight back um, or I can try to uh, acculturate and try to become a part of that and um, I think in a lot of ways when you do take that route where you're trying to just fit into your environment sometimes you can pick up some themes of internalized racism because if you're hearing those messages from your environment and you think that's normal then that's a problem yeah man I'm so grateful for this conversation I did not grow up thinking about Black History Month it was mm -hmm. never part of my curriculum at school, I went to a private Christian school, like vastly white. Part of your research, what I'm gathering is that it's about finding healing through talking about the elephant in the room. Mm, yes. And, yes. and in, in white context, I grew up in often the elephant in the room, stepping into those conversations, there was no tools or no knowledge on how to like begin those conversations. So the few black folks in the room in my predominantly white school um, probably were sharing your experience. And I didn't even know. Totally, yeah. Um, so, so I want to read Ephesians 2 and, and tie it right into kind of your work. Let's because do it, yeah. because you are doing incredible work that is an outflow of the gospel. And so Ephesians 2, Paul starts by talking about like we're dead in our sin and he's made us alive in Christ. 
And when we confess and believe in Christ, he's faithful to forgive us. He says it specifically, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not from ourselves. It's the gift of God, for we are God's handiwork. And, and he finishes the first half of Ephesians 2, all about salvation. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, black, white, every color in between, is saved into a new culture, the family of Yahweh, Jesus. Amen. Why? Why? Yeah, amen. But like, what does that look like? I grew up kind of de-emphasizing the second half of this chapter. But Paul said, it's all for this second half, which he says, therefore, why are you saved? Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. So there's these two racial or ethnic groups Mm -hmm. that are divided. And there's like hostility and plenty of macro and microaggressions probably between those two groups. Like, oh, you're a Gentile, you're a Jew. Verse 14, for Jesus himself is our peace. Right before that, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. Mm. And so, so your work as a clinical psychologist studying the intersection of race and, and mental health, it's all about coming near, leaning in, coming close, bringing up the elephant in the room and finding yeah. healing. Yeah. You're trying to prove that it physiologically heals people mm-hmm. <laughs> to talk about race. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that's that is huge. Um, many of my best experiences with supervisors. Um, I mean, I experienced it with you when we had coffee. Just bringing up what is it like because you're you're a white male, I'm a black male. You brought up what is it like being uh, African American and me being a white person in this interaction. And supervisors just bring that up with me. What is it like me being in this power dynamic as a white supervisor and you as a black student? What is that like for you? That just brought so much unity, I think. And mm-hmm. when you're bringing up that scripture of how unity, how Paul's talking about how we can get to that unity, I think so much that talking about these things, not avoiding a piece of who I am, me not avoiding a piece of who you are, talking about those dynamics and those issues and those things that I've come from and where you've come from, yeah. talking about that, I think, can bring so much unity. Bringing unity. Would you say when, when Paul writes, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Mm-hmm. Like, would you say that happens when the elephant in the room comes up, the wall of hostility gets broken? I think so. Most often when there's grace in the room, I'll say. If there's, I think there's a need for correction. So um, if you're talking to someone who's a white person and they say something that's offensive out of ignorance, um, I think the boldness to correct is so important and also the grace to not push that person away because of that mess up is important, but mm. also mm. the grace on the other person's part to hear that and say, I can uh, work on that and try to move towards uh, being respectful to you. And I think when both parties are in that same line, unity does happen when the elephant's brought up in the room. I think it's so important. Yeah, man. I would love to know about your upbringing. Like, yeah. what was it like growing up in South Louisiana? Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, Stories um, passed down from your grandparents, like all of that, living in the South. Definitely. Well, I want to start with um, just my parents. Um, I, my, mom, uh, my mom and dad both grew up in New Orleans. Um, real, both grew up with uh, low SES. 
Um, my mom's story really stands out in that she... What's low ACS? Low socioeconomic status. Gotcha. So gotcha. Uh, not a whole lot of money. Um, a situation that was very tough. My mom always said that it was a situation she just had to get out of. It was a situation where there was a substance use around her. Um, her environment was very um, not safe in a lot of ways. And um, she just had to get out. And I'm so impressed with my mom's story because one of the things that I talk about or have learned about as a, psycholo- a psychology student is just narratives, narrative therapy, narratives, who we are. And one of the big things about narrative therapy is that it is so important, the stories that we tell about ourselves, but what's also very important is the stories that our environment tells about us. Mm. And the story that my mom got a whole lot of was, um, you know, this isn't, uh, this is sort of where you belong in this place. Because she would kind of talk to me about how she would look at um, people and academics and things like that, and she wouldn't see people that looked like her. And then her parents... So my, my grandma and uh, my grandpa, back when they were just navigating life, schools were segregated. They didn't have equal access to different um, resources and things like that. But um, one of the cool things about my mom is that she became a psychiatrist. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So, yeah, yeah. I forgot to tell you that. Uh, she, she became a psychiatrist. And despite all that, despite narratives, despite Come on. the system, despite invisibility and intersectionality, she became a psychiatrist in... That really made me think also about Black History Month. It's yes. like these voices, you can do this also. I Making saw that history. in my mom. Yeah. And uh, then I also want to also talk about my dad. He's awesome too. Come on. <laughs> he, uh, he really gave me that spirit, I think. He was someone who, uh, he loved Muhammad Ali. He'd mm-hmm. always quote him and just be like, he would like, you know, do the boxing dance and He's, just be like. Jacob's doing the boxing dance. Yeah, right yeah. Now. I wish you could see him. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> used to being on podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm used to being like, you know, I figure y'all can see my hands and stuff. But yeah, I'm doing a boxing pose right now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, my dad would always be like, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And, uh, you know, he would say, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Who's the greatest? And he would say, that's me. And so uh, yes. he would always ask me that. He would say, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And I'd be like, that's you, Dad. And uh, he was like, no, that's me. So <laughs> oh, you got to say that's me. He wanted, he wanted me to say I was the yes, greatest. Yes, yes. He wanted you to exactly. say that's amazing. And I, it took me a while to learn that because I'd be like, that's you, Dad. You're like, no. <laughs> so it took Own me it. to get there and I owned it. And so, so I don't know. There was tears in his eyes one time. I was just like, Dad, I'm the greatest. And he just... He really instilled that spirit also. You can also do this too. Yeah. Both of my parents just really lived it out. They created a great situation for me and my sisters. Grew up with um, three sisters. So um, one of the big things with them that really stood out was uh, how they navigated relationships. Because two of them are older than me and one's younger. And Mm -hmm. just kind of navigating everything together. But Growing up in Louisiana with them, these two awesome role models as parents was just huge, and uh, it really led me to uh, push forward. So uh, I started to see different things. I started to see microaggressions towards my sisters, myself, uh, macroaggressions at times, and it um, it led me to studying psychology in California, yeah. to look into social diversity issues and things like that. Yeah. Can I ask, how, how did you experience those um, microaggressions within the context of church? Yeah, yeah. And how how do you wish those conversations will would have gone and will go in the future in, in churches yeah. where where that are predominantly led by dominant culture or white culture? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh yeah, my church was definitely dominantly led white and the biggest thing for me was that uh I didn't know that there was an issue that existed that much in Louisiana for a while. Like I said, there was some internalized racism going on. I thought I was the problem. 
And I think that in itself is the problem. Mm-hmm. I think um, race, social equity, I don't remember ever being in church and ever talking about it. How did you think you were the problem? I saw my environment respond negatively negatively in some ways to me. And um, I thought it was because of, I mean, just you always hear children grow up, if their parents divorce, you think uh, the child thinks it's their fault. Mm. And I think that's because um, a lot of times we we see that these things are happening to us. They're not happening to other people. Race isn't talked about. Yeah. So it's all about, it's all about the elephant in the room. Exactly. In love, bringing it up. Yeah. Bringing it up in love with grace. And I think, um, it's, I I just remember not being talked about. I don't remember there being any specific, uh, big issues that popped up in church, but I do think that it could have been talked about more, uh, just, what, much much higher degree. What would yeah. that have looked like in a way that would have given you safety and a context of love to live in? Yeah, I think um, it would have looked like maybe from the pulpit. Um, yeah, just talking about it, just talking about. Um, I'm listening right now as a white leader. Like I'm. Yeah, reading those scriptures as we're going through uh, Corinthians, we're talking about uh, Jews and Gentiles and how even back then when um, equality wasn't something that was very normal. Uh, yeah this we see it shine through scripture it's like an apologetic message that wow this has to be god speaking to us if it's breaking the barriers of culture and i think giving shedding light to that you've done an awesome job uh just of i mean my family's back in louisiana and they've listened to the last two weeks of your sermons and i think that's part of the reason i think you do hit on those topics you do hit on and i think in louisiana i'd like uh Mm the churches I've attended to really hit more so on those topics of equality and diversity where you're seeing that, you know, God reaches out to, um, to women first. He reaches out to, uh, the, the people who are viewed the lowest, the the rules have changed. The rules are changed. It's, uh, it's flipped and it's the person who's homeless, who God wants it. He values his opinion so much, but for us in this society where we're so focused on, uh, growth and things like that. It's the person in wealth that's most important. It's the person who has so much that their opinion matters. And it's God flips that you know, in his yeah. head. And I love that. I want to be that kind of community. I love the email you sent to me about what we're going to talk about today. I love how you say perhaps both grace and correction could also lead to more discussion and healing mm. as a society. So your words. Yeah. And you said more specifically... Yeah. So the majority group needs to work to educate themselves and the mm-hmm. minority group members being in a place where they have the patience and grace to correct majority group members when offended, this might lead to more unity. Mm-hmm. And I commend, I, I just can't imagine being in the place of a minority group, like having to constantly hold space. Mm-hmm. For white folks to like wake up and like, yes, and just yes. ask, <laughs> like I commend that. Definitely, it's this is something that me and a lot of my colleagues talk about so much. It's the the feeling that you have to constantly educate, and it's like you're held to that expectation, or you're at a program um, where you're learning about diversity from a, a white male professor or someone in they're speaking to an issue and then they ask, uh, you're the only black person in the room. Uh, could you speak to this? And it's like, you're paying to teach other people about (laughs) the, uh, your experience. And it's, I think so much of, uh, 
grace needs to come because it's it's a place where you know it's difficult sometimes but holding that space can be so frustrating but it's it's so uh important to be in a place where you can be bold and correct because sometimes if you if someone does offend you and does say something that's offensive it's like that shouldn't have i think one uh assumption needs to be that that shouldn't have happened in the first place you know that someone being hurt is that's something that should never happen in the first place. And I think the next step, though, is to try to prevent that from happening in the future. And then also having the grace to still love that person in that process and then have that other person have the grace for themselves to not be defensive and to take that and to try to yeah. make it so it doesn't happen in the future. And I think that process can lead to so much change. Dude, well done. I'm speaking as a white leader to my fellow white folks in the church listening to this. Please continue to grow in understanding the position that the minority group is constantly in mm-hmm. of holding space for dominant culture folks to realize what the minority experience is like. Yeah. That requires so much patience and it's, and it's stress. Mm-hmm. So entering into that, like, how, what is it like being you? And I want to know more about that. Like I, yeah, I just, I just commend you. It's bravery. Resilience. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I also want to talk about the first part of that statement you made, um, specifically majority group members working to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. So we, yes. just, we just talked about the second part, minority group members being in that place where they constantly hold space and grace. Mm-hmm. For me, I want to acknowledge that and also educate myself. Yes. What does that education look like? Yeah. Education can look like um, going to talks, workshops, trying to learn more about what what this other person could be going through it's uh it's i like to think of it like uh case conceptualization because that's what i do all the time when i work with uh yeah so so case conceptualization is basically your approach to another person as a detective it's like you're Mm. trying to figure out how that person started how they got through and how they got to where they are now and there's so many different theoretical orientations uh so you can do act acceptance commitment uh, therapy or uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or psychodynamic all sorts of different lenses you can look through to try to figure out that conceptualization and it's uh sometimes it you you kind of have to do it when you work with clients it's uh it's something that's so important and it's but i think that it's also so loving because what would that look like for someone to do that yeah, that could look like really trying to ask themselves questions, self-exploration, and then also venturing out to learn more about the history. What happened in the past to the, this group of people? Yeah. Um, what uh, What could we do if you're someone who is in a higher up position, if you're at a, a university um, and you have lots of uh, black students, you have some black students coming in, they're a very small minority within your group your uh, campus how can I do my best to support these students what what could I learn about them maybe um maybe allowing for or just understanding that they there are a small amount of minority students here at this college campus and uh, acknowledging that and asking questions like uh what is it like being in the room with someone who is who is white and especially while facing this power dynamic and it it it, it just brings up so many different things to talk about. There's one study I'm doing called the uh, Safety in the Classroom Project. And it's a project where um, it addresses that there's a power dynamic in classroom settings, uh, particularly graduate school settings, where students are in a place where they're interacting with their professors. Um, and it's difficult for students to get feedback because that's the person that's grading you. Um, right. And one of the goals of the study was to facilitate more communication between students and professors by having a student representative or a liaison. And this liaison operated uh, 
last spring at the university I'm at right now, we tested out this protocol and facilitated feedback between professors and students. And what we found was that students were much more comfortable communicating with the higher ups through that student. And what we also mm. found was mm. that we found a prevalence of uh, microaggressions that occurred. So uh, there was not that uh, professors were, there were several occurring, but that at least once they might've heard a comment that went on unaddressed and went on as if it was normal. And uh, that brings me back to that whole feeling of like internalized racism. When things start to appear normal that aren't normal, then maybe that could be offensive in some way. And the Safety in the Classroom Project actually worked to bring out some of those things. And I think this came to mind as we're just talking about like, what are some concrete ways we can go to maybe address what uh, researchers call this leaky pipeline and also um, microaggressions and things like that is uh, really taking time to put into our systems ways that make minority groups feel more comfortable sharing um, so that they don't have to always educate and go out of their way, you know, maybe, maybe uh, helping them up, you know, (laughs) like, yeah. you're having to do all this extra work, so why not? Like you know, let's let's support you as you do that, and also yeah. have that that ear to listen, and then those who are sharing, you know, also have that grace to be like, you know, this is uh, someone I can still unite with in that process. Yeah, wow. But and on that note, thank you for speaking into this podcast. Thank you for speaking to the life of the church today. I'm happy to be here. I'm very grateful for that. And I would I would love to to ask like about your wife and your marriage. Like you're both. Yeah. (laughs) Clinical psychology students. Wow, yeah. And you met in working in that field, and Mm -hmm. what is that like? That is a a journey that uh, it is the lived out experience of being in the room with someone who's 100% different than you. Yeah. Straight all the way to language, because her first language is Turkish. She's from Turkey. Yeah. Then she moved over to uh, Germany and uh, heard about the program at Alliant, got involved there, and so that's how we met. And... uh, Instantly, there was chemistry between us. Uh, we, I was um, a third year student. She's a first. She was a first year student. I'm a fourth year student now. She's a second year student. We connected so quickly, but we found that there was so many differences between us. And fast forward to now, we're married now. Um, yeah. We got married in September. Congratulations! Well, I didn't know it was that recent. Yeah, very recent. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Congratulations! Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I um I play a little bit guitar. I'm not the best, you know. And yeah. I, I I like to karaoke. I'm not the best at that either. But what I I proposed to her by playing guitar. Um, and I made a song for her. I have uh, a guitar on the wall. You gotta play it. You think so? I would need the capo and everything. I I, I might need a couple of minutes to practice. And <laughs> <laughs> when it goes a little, I'm like, Will you marry me? It's Sick. Like yeah, yeah, that's pretty so cool. Good. So romantic. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. And, and she's from Turkey, like first language. Turkey. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it, it had a lot of complications in the process where we had to do, we did a COVID wedding, but we do plan to have a future wedding in mm-hmm. Turkey in June. And then we'll have another wedding in Louisiana. So uh, two more weddings coming up. But Yeah. Most people just get one. You know? Awesome. <laughs> we do We do everything big, you know? So yeah, overall though, it's just been a wild experience where it's like all the way to language barriers where um, I might offend her. And I think I'm just, you know, trying to, uh, or I'm, I'm just trying to communicate to her like, you know, have a nice day or something. And then like, I might say something that comes across in the wrong way, or she might yell at me and say, uh, like uh, an object or something and i'm thinking that she's frustrated with me and in reality she's just trying to think of the word because there's so many different kitchen tools that she has to filter through through her first second and third language give me the spoon yeah and it's not a spoon 
Yeah. <laughs> it's uh That's fun. So much different and then, things. And yeah. then a marriage fight happens. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and then it cascades into so many other things. So you're but... living living your research. Like Yeah. Like how how to alleviate anxiety through addressing the elephant in the room that comes from diversity. Yes. The wall of hostility is constantly being brought down. Yes. Through yes. being aware of someone different than you. It's so beautiful, and Jacob. Things have worked out so much when there's research. I'd like to say that I saw this full circle coming, <laughs> that this would all connect, but as we're talking, yeah, that's it's connected. It's that grace between my wife and I. She has grace for me whenever I come across in a certain way, and we talk about it. Um, and uh, I have grace for her when things come across a certain way. And yeah. it's just building that connection from two people that couldn't be more different um, in terms of values, in terms of uh, what we know, in terms of background, and uh, just culture. And there's so much that I learned from her and uh, so much that she's learned from me. Yeah, so you were telling me earlier about how you and your wife have been responding differently to the events of the last year. How, like, Tell me that story. Speak yeah, to that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting. It's been such a, um eye-opening thing where uh, this all these events that have come to light, so uh, the death of George Floyd, um, mm-hmm. when me and my wife heard about it, we both responded so differently. I saw it happen, and I was like, this is a tragedy, but I kind of just moved on. And my wife, whenever I heard the news, she didn't seem like okay with my response. She said, this she showed it to me again. She said, this man died. And uh, it was at the hands of the government. Like, this is, yeah. these are the people, that's, these are the, the good guys, you know. And uh, it was like she was trying to shake me to see something. And I had to take a step back and I realized, uh, like, I've kind of gotten numb to some of this stuff. I think as someone who's grown up, and we talked a lot about uh, some of these things, but like with internalized racism, but... Mm-hmm. I think some things became the norm too much. And uh, mm-hmm. you start to think that, you know, in order to get past it, maybe you just have to feel numb and things like that. And she has fresh eyes. And I, I love that about her. She sees injustice and she says, this is uh, this is so uh, this is so wrong. And it was such a, a great moment for me to be able to take a step back and realize, like, wow, this is uh I've grown up here in the United States and seen this happen so much, so maybe that led to numbness. And she's not from here, and she's seeing this, and it's very new to her. So that was definitely an eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, so it's eye-opening. What was that, what was that like? It, I think in some ways healing for me because I wanted to be able to observe myself, see that I had become numb to it to a degree. And the injustice, that's an injustice in itself. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that my eyes being open to that was healing because we had just talked about it. It yeah. was something that was big, and it was something that, uh, not to say that my reaction to it was wrong. We all deal with and cope with these things in different ways, but I did want to be aware of that. And uh, communicating that to her gave her more of an understanding about my experience. Yeah. Wow, I, now I see the ongoing toll this might have taken on you. And like I'm like, now I see it too. Yeah. It's uh, it's huge. Yeah, she seems amazing. Oh, yeah. She's, she's amazing. She's uh so wonderful she's opened my eyes to so many things and uh just a beautiful woman and just great so beautiful well i mean gosh i want to end there but i also want to like leave the church with a couple practical thoughts um just to walk away with yeah sure in those spaces where there's an elephant or there's someone that's living that looks different or lives different uh than we do how to like initiate lovingly 
those conversations mm-hmm. uh, about the elephant and about healing and about racial difference, what would be like two things that you would leave our church with just to be thinking about how to step into this more fully, mm-hmm. lovingly as the body of Christ? Yeah. One thing that comes to mind is self-exploration and uh, humility in that regard, where you're you're assuming that you are assuming. You you have the assumption that you're making assumptions about another person. I think having that, yeah, having the assumption that you're assuming like uh, can be so important because it allows you to take a step back and think, I wonder if the way I'm thinking about this person might be a little bit off, yeah. which could lead to this. And that kind of prompts you to want to ask. So I think one thing is assuming that you're assuming is one big yeah. thing. So how would you, so would I go, hey, like I, I've always had this assumption. What do you think? Is that true? Like actually yes. verbalizing that to the other person. I can picture myself saying that to my wife. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's uh, huge because you'll be surprised what you find sometimes. Sometimes you'll find like, yeah, that's definitely, that's what I assume. That's, I mean, that's that's true. And then other times you hear, no, actually, it was, that's way off. And then yeah. your mind is blown and you save hours and hours of uh, and days and days of miscommunication. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely one thing to take away is that expiration. And then also, um, I would say the second thing, which kind of, maybe I can just kind of turn into three actually, uh, grace and courage. Mm. So maybe, uh, you know, flip that, start off with courage and grace. It's, uh, grace circling all that out of the way, but yeah. it's just having the courage to, um, to address things. Cause I think one of the biggest things that also is leading to separation between us is, that feeling that I might step on someone's toes or mm. the feeling that um, I'm going to say something and, you know, I don't I don't know if I really want to address this or talk to this person with uh, that that's black or someone with this disability because I feel like I might accidentally say something and that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Getting out of that and having the courage to really step into that, I think, is so big. And then also grace so that if you're corrected about something, taking a step back and saying, you know, this maybe I am off because I think we all make mistakes. And yeah. If we start to get the idea that I am so self-aware, I'm so woke that, you know, I, I got this figured out. And someone would be like, oh, you offended me. If I think I'm that, if I think that highly of myself, I'm going to be like, they're wrong. I'm going to be defensive. And I think having the courage to uh, really be, to step into that discomfort and then also the grace and the humility to really just be a part of that. Man, thank you so much for your grace and your humility and your professionalism and tell, like everything about you i'm so grateful to know you and to have you as part of our community and your wife tilbay just yeah. such a joy just praying together <clears throat> and growing together in such a crazy time when there are probably more elephants in the room than we can count nowadays mm-hmm. it's all about courage and grace definitely like definitely. hey there it is right there am i assuming this about you and is it right and then allowing space for love goodness yeah, goodness yeah. Wow. And thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me. It's uh, thank you for your courage and your uh, your willingness to really put this together. And I was excited. And yeah. uh, this this is this is awesome. Yeah, man. Thanks, Jacob. Church family, the whole the whole gospel in the New Testament is meant to bring together a diverse yet unified family around Jesus Christ, who gave his life to bring many daughters and sons into the household of his father. And these conversations are key parts of that. And so, 
yeah, this year as there's, you know, division of every kind. I mean, we just talked mainly about like ethnic division, but political and ideological, all kinds of social division. Like I am questioning my assumptions out loud with you in love. Having that, like whether it's politics or race, having that posture is healing. Mm-hmm. It actually heals people. I'm so overwhelmed by that. You're yeah. doing you're doing great work. I can't thank wait. You, I can't wait you. to see how how your hypothesis shakes down and turns into a dissertation and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, for for people to be healed. Well, man, how can we support you? How can we get involved in what you're doing? Yeah, well, I think even being able to talk about it here, it's been kind of healing for me, mm. and. I think right now, as a uh, as a researcher trying to explore these things, um, we're in a process where we're still trying to get some of the research approved. But if there was anyone who wanted to support, um, we are we are looking for other experimenters. So if there's anyone that's uh, between the ages of like eighteen and thirty, that uh, yeah, and ex- especially we're, this is also supportive to those who also identify uh, and are a part of the black community. As mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of black people in psychology, and I think this is just an amazing research opportunity because you would be able to author things in the future that this research turns into, and we offer payment and. Things like that. And also my advisor, um, her name's Dr. Constance Dallenberg, works with a lot of different areas of professional development. She's also agreed to support in some ways because she's uh, a lot of people in her lab have made it to lots of next levels. So she'd be supportive. But amazing. If anybody wanted to kind of get on board with this and yeah. support in any way, it, it could just look like wanting having a research interest and in reaching out to me and via email. My email is the letter J and then Ambrose. So J a m b r o s e one at alliant dot edu so a l l i a n t dot edu and any support uh, or yeah. even just ideas you know that's that would be huge yeah amazing so uh, with that church may the Lord bless and keep you and as always if there's any way we can serve you and uh, just maybe get you plugged into the life of Park Hill let us know info at parkhillsd dot church have an amazing week.